God is going to culminate human history through the Jewish people and He's setting the stage and there's going to be a great ingathering where millions upon millions of Jews will call Jesus Lord. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we have moved into chapter 11, which talks about Israel's future restoration and its relationship with God. The Apostle Paul, in wrapping up his argument from chapter 10, which discusses Israel's rejection of Jesus as the promised Messiah, in Romans 11.3 begins quoting from the book of 1 Kings, which addresses Israel's rejection of various prophets and specifically the prophet Elijah. Let's join Dr. Brogy now as he takes us back to the Old Testament passage. If you're new to the Bible, find Psalms. That's about dead center of most of your Bibles. And then scan to the left and you will come to the book of 1 Kings. Go to 1 Kings chapter 19. Let me bring you into the context of the chapter. It's been a great day in the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah. He has just faced off with an entire nation of people who were in apostasy. They were worshiping the false gods of Baal and the Asherah. And he called fire down from heaven and God answered his prayer. And then he personally slew 450 prophets of Baal. And then in answer to his prayer, he had prayed before that it would not rain. And the skies were like brass. It did not rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again and God brought a great downpour. Add to all of this, he then runs a marathon. He outruns uh, Ahab's chariot all the way from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. And so King Ahab gets home. He's had a really bad day. And he goes and he talks to his wife, Queen Jezebel, that demon-inspired person who brought this cult worship, this child-sacrificing God called Baal into the people of Israel. Now let's walk into the context of Paul's quotation that he's going to make to us here in Romans 11. So let's start in verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Ahab comes home, he says, Jezebel, honey, our prophets, they prayed for six hours that God would bring rain down on the sacrifice. They even cut themselves in earnestness, but Baal didn't hear. And, and Elijah, the prophet, he prays for about six seconds and God comes down and he totally consumes a soaking wet sacrifice. And so now all the people are saying, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And on top of that, he slew all of our prophets. Well, when Jezebel hears that, she's infuriated. Look at verse two. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. She says, in essence, if I don't cut off your neck by tomorrow at this time, if I don't kill you in the next 24 hours, may the gods kill me. I hate you so much, I'm willing to put my life on the line. So King Ahab, he comes home with this report, but Queen Jezebel 
is so hardened in her sin in spite of the evidence that you cannot argue with it, she's confirmed in her unbelief. She's given clear proof up there on the top of Mount Carmel that there is one true God and that her gods are false gods, but it does not change her mind. Verse 3, and he, Elijah, was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He runs He leaves Jezreel. He runs through Judah, through the southern kingdom, all the way to Beersheba. It's a 120-mile trip. I mean, think about this guy. He's totally intimidated. This great prophet who the day before stood up to an entire nation of unbelievers. You would have thought that he would be standing on a mountain of unshakable faith, but he's not. And there's a lesson, of course, that we can learn from it. He's deeply discouraged. And discouragement comes when you forget what God did yesterday in the midst of your circumstances today. Yesterday, his mind and heart was filled with Jehovah. Today, his mind is filled with Queen Jezebel. His perspective is distorted. He has forgotten what God has done. He's just come off of a great victory there on the top of that mount. But this woman with her her intense hatred and threat gives him the Jezebel jitters. This one who calls her God Baal, a God that he knows is not the true God. He's afraid. He's afraid of her and what she might do to him. And there are a lot of Christians today who put God in the past. I've been in a lot of churches when people say, oh, God used to bless here. People used to come to Christ. We used to regularly baptize people. We used to see a lot of people get saved. We used to have an impact on our community. Those were the great old days. And sometimes I'm tempted to say, is God dead? Is God living somehow in the past? Is God not somehow sufficient for today? And I want to tell you, he is sufficient for today. And he wants us to know that you cannot leave God up on top of Mount Carmel. He is good for yesterday and he is good for today. And when you lose focus, discouragement will set in and you will lose perspective. Now notice verse 4. But he himself, Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness. That's another 15 miles according to biblical standards. And he, that is Elijah, came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Lord, I've had it. I I turned in my prophet's badge. I'm through. It's over. I'm not even better than my father's. I'm a nobody. And he's feeling sorry for himself. He's having a pity party. Now, have you ever thanked God for unanswered prayer? I have. I thank God for some of the things I prayed for and he said no to. I don't think Elijah really wants to die. Take my life, Lord. I don't think he really wants. If he wanted that, all he had to do is say, here I am, Jezebel, and she would have gladly accommodated him. He's just feeling sorry for himself and he wants to have a pity party, so he brings God in. Verse 5, it's a picture of God's amazing grace. He, Elijah, lay down and slept under a juniper tree. Behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. 
The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. I mean, I wish I had that angel food recipe. He went another 200 miles to Horeb. Then, verse 9, he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He's still running, and now he's hiding in a cave. But instead of rebuking him, God very gently asked him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I want you to notice his response, because Paul quotes it in Romans 11, verse 3, our text. Look at verse 10. He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Lord, let me tell you what I'm doing here. I've worked hard for you, Lord, but this congregation that you've given me is just as carnal and as obstinate as they can be. I preach sermon after sermon after sermon, and they don't really listen. They're following false gods. They've torn down your places of worship. They've killed all your prophets, and I'm the only one who's left. And so God teaches his prophet two lessons. Don't miss them. Verse 11. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Behold, the Lord was passing by and a great strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. Now there's spillover from the text to our own day. Sometimes we want to see God in the spectacular We want the miraculous. We need to see the mountains shake. And there are whole ministries that are built on this that fill auditoriums with false promises. But the Lord was not in the wind. He continues, and after the wind and earthquake, oh yeah, God must be talking now. This must be God speaking. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. Verse 12, after the earthquake of fire, I know that's going to be God. God is a consuming fire. That's the Lord. The Lord was not in the fire. Where are you, Lord? You told me to come to Mount Horeb to look for you, and I've come, and I haven't seen you in any spectacular way. And then the Bible says, and after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing, a gentle blowing breeze. And it came about when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? You mean, Elijah, you didn't cover your face in that strong and great wind when God rent the mountains? No, because the Lord was not in the strong wind. You mean you didn't cover your face in the earthquake? No, because the Lord was not in the earthquake. You mean you didn't cover your face in the fire? No, he wasn't in the fire. Where was he? He was in the simple blowing breeze. God was not in the spectacular. He was in a gentle blowing breeze, and it was there that his still small voice could be heard. And God wanted to teach his prophet, and by extension, he wants to teach us something. He wants to teach us that God does not normally speak in the Mount Carmel experiences of life. 
He normally speaks in the ordinary, gentle breezes of life. You know the kind of life that I've come to appreciate? It's not the kind of Christian who has to live every day a Mount Carmel experience, but a Christian who can live in the everyday glory of the grind. It's the kind of life that doesn't function just in church on Sunday when we're gathered, but functions in the home throughout the week. Earthquakes, fires from heaven, strong rending winds, those aren't typical. But gentle blowing breezes happen every day. And if we have eyes to see it, we will see God at work. Now he teaches him a second lesson. And the lesson is really a lesson of math. He said, I alone am left. He said it twice over in the text. And God says, Elijah, your arithmetic's all wrong. Look now at verse 18. Paul quotes this in Romans 11 and verse 4. God said, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. God is saying, Elijah, I have a remnant. I have chosen a body of people that I am using. You are just one in 7,001, which is a reminder to me that no man, no woman is indispensable to the work of God. We're only instruments. God doesn't need any of us. It's a privilege that he would use us. Now go back to Romans chapter 11. That was important for us to understand the context of what he is saying. He is answering the question that the chapter opens up with. God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. No way. Absolutely not. And to prove us, to prove that, he gave us personal proof of his own life. He gave us theological proof that God in his foreknowledge knew what Israel was going to do. He gave us historical proof that God has always had his remnant. And now he gives us visual proof. Visual proof that God has not abandoned Israel. Look now at Romans 11 in verse 5. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Paul's saying, look around. Just as there was a remnant in Elijah's day, even so, in the same way, there's a remnant in our day. You might want to put out in the margin next to verse, tw- uh, next to verse 5, Acts 21 and verse 20. Acts 21 and verse 20. If you remember, the book of Romans was written on Paul's third missionary journey. And at the, the end of that journey, he comes back to the city of Jerusalem. And the apostle James greets him. And James says to him, you see, brother, speaking to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. Major question. Why were there not more Jews? Why could not James say, there are millions of believing Jews? Because as verse 5 indicates, there was a remnant. And there was a remnant because they have to come according to God's grace's choice. And there's the word election again. God's choice is based on his grace. And God chooses you on the basis of grace. And he underscores that in verse 6. But if it, this choice that God makes, is by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What makes the grace of God the grace of God that it is unmerited and unearned? 
Salvation by grace through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's how God saves us. Salvation is not a reward to people who live good. It's not a reward to the righteous. It is a gift to the guilty. And so Israel didn't come on the basis of God's grace's choice. They came on a different basis. So we read in verse 7, What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. What was it that Israel was seeking for which they have not obtained? Well, we've already studied in the ninth chapter, and he repeated it in the tenth chapter. They were looking for salvation. They had a zeal for God, but not in accordance with biblical truth, not in accordance with knowledge, because they did not come on the basis of grace. They came on the basis of their self-righteousness, and God doesn't save you by works. God doesn't save the man or woman or boy or girl who thinks he is good enough. God saves the spiritually bankrupt and destitute through the death of his son. And because they rejected God's son, verse 8 says, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And then after he quotes Isaiah 29, he quotes Psalm 69. And David says... Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. They said no to the grace of God, to God's grace's choice, and so God said no to them. No one is going to heaven just because they're a Jew anymore that they're going to heaven because they are a Gentile. God saves Jew and Gentile alike by the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, we've only cracked the door when we think about Israel and prophecy. But let me give us some applications to take home today. Three applications come to the surface of my mind from these verses. Number one, there is a judicial blindness that God permits to come over the eyes of people who resist grace. Paul just quoted Isaiah, then he gave a second witness from David, who is both prophet and king, God can make a person's eyes spiritually blind. He can make a person's ears blocked if they resist the grace of Almighty God. And by the way, the Lord Jesus in the 12th chapter, speaking of the Jewish people, also quoted the prophet Isaiah in a different place, but the exact same stream of thinking. Let me read it to you. Jesus therefore said to them, to the Jewish people, for a little while longer, the light is among you. He has already said, I am the light of the world. The newer translations now capitalize light. For a little while longer, the light is among you. While you have the light, that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he departed and hid himself from them. But although he had performed so many signs, so many miracles before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this cause, because they would not believe, for this cause they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, 
He has blinded their eyes. Same truth that Paul highlights in Romans 11. He has blinded their eyes. He, God, has hardened their hearts so they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Jesus said in John 12, 37, they would not believe. And so he states in John 12, 39, they could not believe. A time will come in a person's life because they will not believe that they cannot believe. And when a person resists the revelation of God, when a person resists God's grace on their life, something begins to happen within. And spiritually, you can reach a spot where you cannot believe. It's a serious thing to toy with God. You don't draw yourself to God. God draws you to himself. That's why the prophet also said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You don't wait forever to make a decision for Christ. Today could be your last day. You say, you're scaring me. No, I'm just telling you the truth of Scripture. God is patient and He is long-suffering, but there comes a time when even the patience of God gives way to His judgment. Second, I learned this morning that while there is only a remnant of believing Jews, God still has not abandoned Israel. You can look around today and there's a visual illustration that God has not abandoned Israel because there's a Jewish remnant even in our day. According to the Messianic Jewish Alliance that no doubt has the best numbers, they say there's 100,000 Jews for Jesus here in this country. 100,000 Messianic Jews and approximately 350,000 worldwide. When I go to Israel, there's 150 congregations of Messianic Jews, 12 in the city of Jerusalem alone. Not big, but God has his people. Why not more? Why does not my good friend Ellis Goldstein, who embraced Jesus as his Messiah, why does not the rest of his family? Why do not most of my friends in the nearly all Jewish high school that I went to, why do they not believe in Jesus? For the same reason many here listening do not believe. Because they don't see the need. And they are self-righteous. And you think you can earn your way to heaven. But don't miss the rest of the chapter. Stay tuned. We're in here for several weeks. God is going to culminate human history through the Jewish people. And He's setting the stage. And there's going to be a great ingathering where millions upon millions of Jews will call Jesus Lord. God has not rejected His people whom he foreknew. And I'm encouraged when I read a text like this because in spite of faithless Israel, God is faithful to Israel. And in spite of your faithlessness, God will still be faithful to you. Third and finally, when you feel like you're a part of a modern day remnant, remember that God has not abandoned his church. The Bible prophesies that as we move into the last of the last days, that the true church will not grow, it will actually shrink. And we will feel more and more like a remnant. And if you've noticed, our nation and our world is changing very, very fast, but not for good, but for evil. But God still has his remnant. Our traditional American values that were built on a Judeo-Christian ethic are fast dissolving. And as evangelicals and the things that we hold to, we're becoming more and more a minority. 
But God foretold this, that in the last days, difficult times would come, that men would have a form of godliness, but they will deny the power therein. There's growing unrighteousness in our day where people are calling wrong things right and right things wrong. They are being given over, as Romans 1 teaches, to a depraved mind. You could translate it to an upside-down mind. Now, I meet more and more people in their 20s who are not born again, and they don't care to be born again. They have no interest. And Jesus said, because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. Now, I know God could bring a revival, and I often pray for revival, but I know ultimately in the end, God will not bring a revival, but He will bring His Son from heaven. And you may feel alone, and you may go onto the college campus, some of you as freshmen, and feel all alone. Like you're the odd man out. And some of you feel that way in the Marine Corps. Some of you feel that way in your neighborhood, in the place that you work. But don't fear, God has his remnant. And he prophesied that at the end of the church age, just like at the beginning of the church age, there would be a remnant of Jews. At the end of the church age, there'll be a remnant of true believers. But God is on his throne. And just as there's hope for Israel, there's hope for the church because he is coming back for his bride. So rest assured, he is with you even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you today for this text of Scripture, that this is not what you have said, this is what you are saying. That you've written this for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. I pray today for someone sitting, someone listening to me in their car, through the internet, live streaming us, someone who is unsure and uncertain that if this were their last day, they hope they'd go to heaven, they think they might, but they don't know. And your word says they do not know because they've not rested and trusted in the finished work of Christ is sufficient. So help them to know that the Lord Jesus didn't die for some or most, but all of their sin. And he proved his ability to do that when you raised them from the dead. So you can say, whoever will call on his name will be saved. Help someone today to say in faith, knowing you cannot lie, Lord Jesus, save me. Our Father, we thank you that you are on your throne and that a hated, despised people you have preserved. And just as you said you would do in the last of the last days, you would gather your people, Israel, back in the land. You form them as a nation. You're setting the stage. May our eyes be open. May we be sensitive to what is happening that we might not be sucked into the lukewarmness of this day. Help us to stand like the remnant in Elijah's day stood. Help us to stand for what is true and right. You said the unbelieving are the cowardly. Put steel in our spines as we study Scripture and change us and transform us to the glory of Jesus, we pray. And in His holy name, amen. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app with Dr. Carl Brogy. Available in the iTunes Store and the Google Play Store for tablets and smartphone devices. You can also visit us online at searchthescriptures.org 
or call us at 877-787-7478. And for today's program entitled, Has God Abandoned Israel? Just ask for program ROM54. Perhaps you have a question you would like to ask Dr. Brogy personally. You can do that Tuesday mornings between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to it online at wagp.net, and there you'll get instructions on how to ask a question. Tomorrow, we'll begin a look at God's olive tree. Join us then as we search the scriptures.